welcome back, everyone. Uh, we have an awesome guest today. Her name is Dr. Jesse Hoffman. Um, she's a registered dietitian and she has a PhD in nutritional sciences. She's also an assistant professor at Winthrop University. Uh, and we're grateful to have her as a guest. So thanks, Dr. Hoffman, for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk today. Yeah, it's uh, we're, we're really looking forward to it. Um, Brendan and I always get into some type of nutrition talk. So <laughs> I think I'm most excited to talk about poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. Let, let's let him get all of that out right now because he can't just poop? keep bringing it is up. Is that a poop pun? <laughs> Low key. <yes. laughs> All right. All right. We love okay, it. Here we go. All right. <laughs> yeah. So if you could start by maybe just giving us some brief background on you, maybe um, where, how you got into the field of nutritional sciences and any relevant background, feel free to go back as far as you feel relevant. Sure. Um, so like he, uh, like y'all mentioned, I have a PhD in nutritional sciences and the way in which I got here was not, I didn't set out, um, from a young age, knowing that this is what I wanted to do. During my high school, like towards the end of my high school career, um, well, I guess going back, I had always been interested in like medicine and um, that type of field. And I had always thought I would either go into like nursing or become a doctor or become a veterinarian, which was, those are like my three top, um, I guess, career goals growing up. Um, so I always loved the sciences, but towards the end of my high school career, I kind of um, fell in love with nutrition for the wrong reasons and uh, developed a pretty severe eating disorder, which ended um, ended with me in the hospital and then ended with uh, me in a treatment facility for several months. And so I missed about half of my senior year due to being treated um, for anorexia nervosa. Um, and that is a ongoing struggle, not ongoing now, but... Um, it that was kind of like an underpinning of my life from my senior year of high school, probably through the entirety of my undergraduate career, which is something that I was constantly working towards recovering for and battling internal thoughts. Um, and that's really why I got interested in nutrition. Um, and thankfully, I had some great mentors and, it, um, and guidance from my parents and friends and family that uh, saw that my interest in nutrition um, going into college was not probably the best um, for me to go down and pursue like a nutrition path at that time. So I went um, to a very small liberal arts school for undergrad. We had about like less than 1500 students, which was great for me. Um, number one, because they offered me a full ride, which is if we can get out of school debt free, like win-win. Um, and number two, I just had a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. It was I wasn't going to get lost in the crowd, which was great for me as a student, and also great for me in terms of like recovery. Um, I, my professors, I was very open with about it. Um, they knew about it, and it kind of could hold me accountable for you know in some in some sense. Um, so I went through with uh, biology, and I dabbled in just straight biology with plans to maybe go to vet school. Um, and then I switched halfway through and decided that I was going to be um, a high school like science teacher. Uh, did that for like track in college, was heading down that road for about two semesters and decided I didn't want to teach high schoolers. Um, I kind of decided at that point that I felt strong enough in my recovery um, to really pursue like a passion in nutrition that was, I felt at the time was genuine. Um, and looking back, I do still feel that it was a genuine um, belief that I was helped by so many people in the nutrition field to 
myself out of my eating disorder, um, that I kind of wanted to go back into that field to be able to give back. And I know that learning for me, learning about the science behind the way our bodies work and the fuel that they require was very healing for me. Um, and so that's at that point why, why I decided to go down and pursue a master's in nutrition, which I went to UNC Greensboro, which I can't hype that program enough for my master's. It was the most incredible um, educational experience. I learned so much, had a great mentor, got to do research, um, basically the whole shebang. And then that led me into my PhD program um, in nutritional sciences and kind of where I, uh, how I got into that field. And then along the way, I came about becoming registered dietitian in a kind of backwards way for most people. Traditionally, the way to become a registered dietitian is you go and get your bachelor's in dietetics or nutrition, um, and you get what's called a DPD verification statement, which means you've taken all the courses required to become a registered dietitian, which that allows you to be eligible for a dietetic internship, which is about a one-year-long internship, unpaid, and you pay typically, um, to then be able to, after you do that internship, to sit for the like board exam that we have. So instead of doing that, during my master's and PhD, I took those DPD required courses along the side. So I took undergraduate courses along with my PhD courses in research um, and was able to get pretty close to finishing that DPD verification statement when I realized there was another avenue for PhDs to um, in nutrition to become registered dietitians and kind of bypass the traditional internship process. Um, the traditional internship process works kind of like the match for like residency. Um, you basically, you send out a bunch of applications and you rank your top five or so, and then they rank you and you have to match up. And basically wherever you match, you got to go. Like, otherwise you're not becoming a dietitian. Um, and luckily for PhDs in nutrition, we have what's called an ISPP, which is like an individualized supervised um, pathway to becoming a registered dietitian. Um, and your internship is kind of set up by you. Um, the program that I went to was like pretty much a rolling admission, direct admit, wasn't like a match. Um, and so that's how I ended up becoming a registered dietitian. Um, so very long winded to say, got into nutrition for the wrong reasons. Um, and it kind of just evolved as I went, never had a straight plan. Um, and the more and more people I talk to that go into their like PhD programs, um, most of them didn't have like, didn't set out in undergrad or high school to be like, I want to go and get my PhD. It's kind of like, you just kind of fall into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it's, it seems like a, a an advantage to a certain sense though, because I feel like you have a full scope of a lot of, um, aspects around nutrition and not just this one direct path, which is really nice. Yeah. It, I definitely love that. I have a pretty diverse educational background. Um, I love the fact that I, was a biology major in undergrad because I got courses in a lot of courses that were preparing me for like vet school. So like I took my freshman year a course called comparative vertebrate anatomy, which was literally just like a dissection. Like you just came in and you just dissected about like every possible animal they could get their hands on. Um, and you'd learned about like shark brains and like all this kind of crazy stuff. Um, so I'm very thankful that I got that experience and to a sense, have like a little bit of a diversified background. When I talk to people now, um, I my pathway masters in nutrition and PhD in nutrition worked really well for me. Um, but there are some advantages into maybe getting a master's in like exercise science and then a PhD in nutrition or vice versa, um, to where you have kind of like different um, backgrounds that complement each other in a sense. 
Um, another thing in nutrition that would be helpful would be like a background in like counseling, you know, like a master's in some sort of psychology would be really helpful too. Is that common that people who are going into PhD programs in nutrition have aligning, but maybe not nutrition specific degrees? The most common that you see is usually like the exercise nutrition crossover. Um, Sometimes, so with the taking like a step back, looking at like bachelor's and master's. So to become a registered dietitian right now, you just do the undergrad pathway um, in your internship and you're a dietitian, you're good to go. Um, starting in 2024, you're going to have to have a master's degree too to be able to sit for the board exam, um, and that's where I'm. I see, I feel like it's. Uh, I would encourage people to diversify their backgrounds there, um, because a, a master's in nutrition is great. You get a very high level, um, but there are also other fields that really complement being a dietitian really well. Um, so, like, like I said, like counseling, maybe like an MBA, something. You know, if you want to go in private practice, it would be great to have like your MBA. Um, you know, exercise if you're interested in like sports and um, things like that. So that's where I, if I was going through it again and I was doing just like our uh, undergraduate and master's for the RD, I would probably try to diversify a little bit there as well um, and not do like an undergrad in just dietetics and a master's in just dietetics. At least do an undergrad in dietetics, which is like the clinical side of things and a master's in like maybe like a more nutrition science, like the more biochem side of things, at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so much there. I think there's like so (laughs) much information that I feel like you have to know in that role. Like it's, yeah, for sure. It's overwhelming to kind of think about. As a dietitian, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. The, and your internship, well, and it, it kind of, the dietetics training, your coursework shapes you in this area throughout your entire, like, course sequence. Um, but there's three main areas that a dietitian can like go into. So the most common being like a clinical realm, work in a hospital, work one-on-one with clients. Um, even if it's not in the hospital, it's still in like a, um, nutrition counseling, kind of what we call MNT medical nutrition therapy, something that, you know, prescriptive diets for specific conditions, stuff like that. Um, you can also do community work. So you could work with SNAP, you could work with WIC, um, different community organizations that work on like food security, food justice, those kind of things. Um, and so there's tons of different organizations that RDs help out with in the community. And then the least common, um, and I feel like people kind of look over this, but RDs have a really strong role in food service. Um, So there is typically a dietitian that is like the head of food service for a like hospital. Um, So they direct all, it's not like, um, it's not like you're in charge of like making the meals, but you basically are managing, um, it's basically food service management. Um, So you're managing the whole entire operation. There's um, that same role for like school districts. Typically there's a dietitian that manages all of the food production and operations for school districts um, and things like that. And then of course you can go into like governmental roles too. Um, You could go work for, I know dietitians um, that work for the USDA and some that work for the FDA um, and some that help set our dietary guidelines um, that come out every five years. So um, there's, there's a pretty wide range of what dietitian can do. And I think people reduce it to just like what they traditionally think of like a nutritionist to be is just like, I'm going to tell you what to eat. Um, we do, we do a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, when you were going through your PhD, did you have to choose a specific like emphasis within the field of 
dietetics to focus on? So my PhD was a little bit interesting. So I went to the University of Kentucky for my PhD, and they have a dietetics department um, that doesn't have a PhD program as of right now. They have a master's and an undergrad program. And then they have in the College of Medicine, so that, that one is in the College of Agriculture. And then in the College of Medicine, they have a nutritional sciences department, which is heavy research. Um, you take all of like the same courses that a lot of the med students take in terms of like biochemistry courses and stuff like that. Um, and it's just largely research focused and nutritional, like biochem, um, and metabolism. A lot of our, uh, faculty there work on cardiovascular disease and its interaction with nutrition, um, and things like that. So that's the more research lab heavy side. Um, and that's the one I was in. And so with my program and with a lot of PhDs, um, it's in the field of like sciences, you get admitted to a lab in which has like a primary research focus. And then you get to kind of build off of there and decide where you want to go into. So I got admitted to a lab that was part of a big um, research center. Um, it was called the Superfund Research Center. And so they worked on the study of environmental pollutants, um, specifically pollutants called PCBs, um, polychlorinated biphenyls. And they looked at their interaction with overall like metabolic and cardiovascular health and the role that nutrition could play in preventing um, and attenuating those, some of those outcomes. Um, so I got into the lab, they studied largely just straight cardiovascular disease um, and the interactions between nutrition there. But I came in with an interest in the gut microbiome and I was like, well, the background information that we have on these pollutants shows that our primary source of consumption of like getting them into our body is through ingestion, which obviously has to bypass or like has to pass through the GI tract. And you're like, anything that goes through the GI tract has the possibility to interact with the microbiome. And that was not an area that was being researched. Um, and so that's what I studied. So I, my first real um, research study with my PhDs just established that the, um, those pollutants did interact with the microbiome and alter um, its uh, composition and alter um, were associated with metabolic changes that we saw systemically. Um, I did mouse work, not human work. So you can't can't dose humans with pollutants and study them. It's not ethical. Um, <laughs> uh, and then the second study I did uh, looked at a intervention to target the microbiome and see if we could attenuate some of the effects. And so I used inulin, which is a fiber. It's a prebiotic fiber um, prebiotic, just meaning that the bacteria love it and they metabolize it really well. Um, we can't break it down, but our bacteria have the enzymes to digest it. Um, it can, because of that, it can be highly gas producing. And so lots of people don't tolerate it well, um, but it is one of the strongest prebiotics that we have. Um, and so that was what that study looked at. Um, and we did see beneficial changes with like glucose metabolism, protection against cardiovascular disease risk factors, um, and pretty dramatic shifts in their microbiome that we would consider to be more like quote unquote healthy. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question cause I started, yeah. started squirreling, but. And, and you were mentioning the PCBs. Is that, um, is there like a classification of like PCBs? Is that, does, is there like a, a layman's term? Like, is that, would that fall under like the, it's an antibiotic and we're getting it from food or. No, and that's something it's, I, I want to get into later, obviously is so antibiotics on the microbiome. PC but. PCBs are a like class in of itself of pollutants. And there's like 200 different forms of PCBs. Mm -hmm. um, and they fall under a category of what we call POPs or persistent organic pollutants. Um, so 
organic meaning just their chemical composition, persistent meaning they largely resist degradation in the environment, which is why they are a problem. Um, and so PCBs, the PCBs that I studied um, are a known carcinogen. Um, and so that was determined in the 70s. They were banned from um, their production. They were they have really like advantageous chemical properties. Um, so they're very like thermally stable. Um, they were used primarily in like transformers and like hydraulic fluids and lots of things like that. And so when those things would break, they would leach into the environment. Um, and then what happens is they bioaccumulate along the food chain um, where, you know, it gets into the soil, it gets into lowest levels, animals, those animals, that are above them on the food chain, eat them, and that it accumulates in the bodies of those um, animals. And our largest, our primary route of consumption are through like fatty products because the pollutants themselves are lipophilic. Um, so they are attracted in, uh, attracted to like fat, they are fat kind of based. Um, and so we find them pr primarily in like fatty dairies and meat. Um, and then salmon is a pretty large um, contributor as well, just due to the um, nature in which some of these have leached into the water system and then the salmon accumulate them within their bodies as well. Um, and I forget where I was going with that initially, but <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Cause I, th I know, I don't know if it's uh, very similar to what you're describing now, but the um, like the pesticides that are used in a lot of foods, I was pretty shocked to find out that there's a lot of things like the glyphosate I know is like the big one that people talk about when they talk about pesticides. I was pretty fascinated to find out that there's trace amounts. Like we've used it so widely for the last, however many years that it's almost impossible to like even organic foods are being grown and have trace amounts of glyphosate in them because it's just been, it's in the soil, it's in the air, like rainfall can put glyphosate on plants now. And I was just like, dang, like we are buying organic food, but like, we're probably getting a lot of the same stuff that we even think we're avoiding. Yeah. There's a large myth kind of squirt, like going off of that. There's a large myth that organic is like quote unquote healthier. Um, and that it's like pesticide free. And because of that, those reason reasons, it's not technically pesticide free and there are organic pesticides that can be used as well. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's quote unquote healthier. And then in terms of like, so my lab was, I was the only nutrition PhD student in my lab. The rest of my lab was toxicology. So I got a kind of got to interact with them and learn from them, um, which was really cool because I would have never studied any sort of toxicology. Otherwise, it wasn't something that I was like super like, you know, keen on going into, um, but just kind of like happened that it was related to my topic. Um, but you have to think about a lot of the studies that we do and even the studies that I did in my PhD, largely with pollutants, we are relying on mouse and cell culture data, which never, not never, doesn't always translate well to humans. Um, and even the levels in which I was using in my animal research would be indicative of someone that would get an occupational exposure um, to PCBs um, or certain populations throughout the U.S. We have um, Superfund sites, which are these contaminated sites um, in regions of the U.S. that have high levels of certain pollutants like PCBs. Um, and there is a population in Anniston, Alabama, where there is a factory there that um, used to manufacture and have a lot of these PCBs. It's leached into the environment. These individuals have high levels of PCBs within their body and blood. 
um, and they uh, are being a very like heavily studied population for like what are the outcomes that we're seeing here because again we can't go and dose someone with PCBs and see like what happens we just have to kind of but it might be what, happening by accident so we yeah. can kind of study those people yeah yeah, yeah. so um, there's what you have to think about there is even with glyphosate, a lot of the evidence is in animal models and in cell culture models, and they're using doses that are super high um, and relatively not attainable by humans who are not falling into a vat of glyphosate or living in an environment where it's been leached largely. Um, but that being said, we, these, the area of pesticide research um, uh, and like toxicology with environmental pollutants and stuff is still relatively young um, and incredibly difficult to study for the reasons that I've outlined. So it's definitely something that you still want to be like cautious about, um, but be like an informed consumer and know that just because a cell culture or mouse study says that it causes this metabolic or health outcome, um, that it's not something to necessarily get super alarmed at um, until you really evaluate like how much is physiologically possible for me to ingest um, and actually get into the cells in which they're saying have have the effects. Yeah. Before we move any further forward, like the idea of the gut microbiome didn't even come into my vocabulary until like a couple of years ago, I feel. Um, so could you just explain like on a basic level, like what it is and yeah. why it's so important? So we have tons of different like microbiomes in our body. We have like a skin microbiome, an oral microbiome, and, and basically various regions on our body harbor these microorganisms, which are not just bacteria. Um, a lot of times we reduce it to only bacteria, but they also include yeast, um, fungi, and even uh, viruses um, that are just natural to our, what you call them just normal flora. Um, and they may uh, kind of live in like a symbiotic relationship with us. Um, they may provide us with some benefits. Um, we may provide them with benefits from uh, hosting them within our body. Um, but the gut is really the large focus of a lot of research on the microbiome because we have trillions of bacteria that reside within our gut. Um, and to date, we have um, over a thousand different species that have been identified of different bacteria that live within our gut. Um, and so largely a lot of the research has focused on just identifying who is there. Um, and like you mentioned, you've only come into like real, like noticing like the term gut microbiome come up and it's really in science to, in the broad uh, like realm of science, it's incredibly, incredibly young. Um, we've really only been studying this for 20 or so years, you know, 10 years really focusing on the gut microbiome. Um, and so there's so much that we need to learn. Um, and largely a lot of the research up until this point has just focused on identifying who's there, um, which we now know that that's not necessarily um, that doesn't necessarily tell us the whole picture um, because who's there doesn't always tell us what they're doing um, and what they're doing is thought to be more beneficial or more of how they are exerting their effects within our body um, because our gut is pretty um, in most people um, outside of, you know, GI illnesses or um, certain diseases. Our gut is a pretty tight um, environment, closed environment, pretty separate from the rest of our body. And that makes sense. We don't need bacteria floating around our bloodstream. Otherwise, that's sepsis and not compatible with life, um, very deadly. Um, and so 
the way in which these bacteria largely communicate with the um, other regions of our body are through production of metabolites um, that then influence certain cell signaling pathways um, and other processes within the body. And so the large metabolites that have been focused on um, for most of the time that research has been doing, been done on the gut microbiome or something called short chain fatty acids. Um, and these are basically what the name implies. They're very small fatty acids. There's three primary ones, acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And they have various functions throughout the body. Um, so butyrate is thought to be the like, quote unquote, most beneficial of the three um, in that it is used within the intestine and the with um, the colon cells pretty extensively um, and helps ma them maintain like a healthy barrier, um, helps with their, their cell turnover. Um, but then acetate, propionate, and butyrate systemically can have differential effects on cell signaling pathways. And so they can influence certain metabolic pathways um, throughout the body. And it's thought that they can be um, to an extent uh, anti-inflammatory, but there is also um, kind of a, uh, interaction with them, like, like more of something is not always necessarily a good thing. So in individuals with um, really, at really high weights, we tend to, some of them tend to exhibit very high levels of short chain fatty acids. Um, and that's thought to potentially contribute to their like energy um, they, they seem to be, uh, have a greater capacity at harvesting energy. Um, so these short chain fatty acids get produced from the fermentation and metabolism of like largely dietary fiber. Um, so like I said, fiber for us doesn't contribute much calories because we can't break it down physically um, using our enzymes, but our microbes can. Um, and when they produce short chain fatty acids, that does give fiber a level of caloric value because it can um, those, those fatty acids can be metabolized as fatty acids. Um, so it's thought that individual, certain individuals have a greater propensity to producing short chain fatty acids and that may achieve, uh, push them into a more of a, like a positive energy balance where they are going to be gaining more weight because they may not be eating more, but they may just be harvesting more energy. Um, and so that's like a, um, another, area in kind of like the obesity systems map in which we know that obesity is a multifactorial um, issue. It's not just caused by, it's not willpower based. Um, it's, there's genetically, it's genetically driven, it's socioeconomic status driven. Um, and then it's driven, it could be possibly driven by your microbiome as well. Um, so yeah, the large way in which our bacteria communicate with us uh, systemically, it's through production of different metabolites. Um, and they also can produce things, certain neurotransmitters, aid in certain vitamin production um, and some hormone production. So there is a, we're learning more and more each day about the role in which they play um, on our like overall health through those mechanisms. Is it safe to say typically when it comes to gut microbiome that like diversity is important or are we looking for like high volumes of specific types of bacteria in our, in our gut? So we tend to, based on most of the research that is out there, a greater diversity is typically correlated with better health outcomes, um, largely just for the functional capacity that would exist with having a greater diversity um, is just, you know, you have the capacity for doing all of the different various metabolic functions um, that the microbes are providing us with. If you just have 
more different species there. Um, so we do tend to believe that a greater diversity is more beneficial. And what's it's kind of what we would, um, what researchers label as like a healthy microbiome is if you have a large amount of diversity. Um, but again, there are limitations to that because we can feed individuals certain high fiber diets and their diversity can actually go down, but we know those high fiber diets are beneficial for overall health. So there it's not always black and white, but nothing in nutrition is ever black and white. So yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as a side note, before we go more into the gut microbiome, cause I have many questions. If I, as a average citizen just wanted to go and like get my microbiome tested how would I do that? And is there a a specific company maybe that like will provide like a detailed breakdown and like what the results are or is like, how would somebody evaluate after getting their microbiome tested? Yeah. So this is a question I get a lot. Um, and it's something that I tell people getting your microbiome tested is more of a, like, um, just a snapshot of your microbiome at that one moment, not indicative of your core microbiome or your long-term microbiome for various reasons that I'll, I can talk about. Um, and so there are various companies that are able to test it. There's tons of like this, like precision nutrition and precision medicine, kind of like at home, do it yourself. Testing is becoming like the rage, the rage. Yes. Um, and so you, you can order any type of test that you want. You can test like urinary hormones. You can test your microbiome. You can test your genetics. Um, but with that comes a lot of caveats and a lot of warnings that we have to put out there. Um, in that a lot of these methods are not, um, necessarily the gold standard, or you can't interpret them by yourself without the help of a practitioner who's trained. You mean um, WebMD? I can't just go and like do my own doctoring on myself? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I can't imagine. So just being in the nutrition field, I know how frustrating it is for, you know, people to come with, you know, like self-diagnosing themselves with nutrition issues. Um, I can't imagine what it's like being a doctor in today's age where everyone comes in. It's like, I think I know I have this and they're like, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with the, with the microbiome test, they, I largely discourage people from doing them um, because they are uh, fecal microbiome based. So the, our fecal microbiome is more indicative of the microbiome that we are eliminating. Um, yet there are correlations right. between our microbiome that is within our feces and our microbiome that exact it like exists within our gut. But we know that if we give someone like probiotics, we see a lot of those bacteria come up in the feces. It doesn't mean that those bacteria colonize the gut. It just means that they're passing through the feces. Yeah. Um, and so the way in which we, um, analyze the microbiome is through um, various methods, but the most predominant is 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing. So basically, you are sequencing the genetic material of the microbes and identifying them um, down to sometimes the species level based on specific genetic markers. Um, so all bacteria have what's called the 16S um, gene. And so we're able to sequence that because they this gene has regions that are highly variable, um, meaning they're going to be very specific to the like individual microbes. And then they have regions that are highly um, uh, just redundant and throughout all microbes. Um, So we can basically identify that they're bacteria and then use the variable sequences to identify which specific bacteria it is. So that's largely how it's being done. Um, And there's various methods to do that. And the methodology is another 
another sticking point with um, sequencing your microbiome because you can use two different sequencing or different methodologies and get completely different results. Um, so there is no that's something within the field that we need to work, that we're working towards is trying to find like a gold standard, like this is the way that everyone needs to do it um, in order for results to be consistent um, and comparable. But again, like your fecal microbiome is only indicative of what you're passing through. Um, the, we have in our, in our guts um, microbes that exist both within the lumen, which is like basically the tube, like in the center of the tube where it's interacting with um, various uh, like dietary components um, and things that come into our body. And then we have like our mucosal microbiome. Um, so those that live more closely to the wall, um, we have like a mucosal layer, which has a large amount of um, mucin, which is just uh, like gel-like protein substance that a lot of the bacteria stick into. Um, and so a lot of our core microbiome lives there. And then what passes through the center um, of our lumen is more transient and more influenced by diet um, and environmental factors and things like that. And so when you're sequencing the fecal microbiome, you're only sequencing that luminal microbiome and what's actually passing through and not ga gathering the whole picture. Taking that a step further, the issue, uh, the other issue with sequencing your microbiome is we currently don't know, there's not much actionable information we can give you in terms of what to do based on your microbiome. Um, there are companies out there that have just seen the profitability of this like field um, and have jumped on and said, okay, well, we'll tell you exactly what to eat based on your microbiome or stuff like that. And it's like, we're not at all scientists in this field will we'll agree that we're not at the level in which we can be prescribing diets um, based on your specific microbial makeup. There are tests if you think you have like a certain infection um, or overgrowth of certain bacteria that your doctor can do um, to identify if you have like a problematic species or bug in there that needs to be treated and eliminated. Um, the most common of that being um, H. pylori, which would be in the stomach, um, different methods for sequencing or for capturing and figuring out if that's there and culturing that. But most commonly within the gut is a bacteria called Clostridium difficile, um, incredibly pathogenic, mostly derived from hospital infections where an individual has been on antibiotics for a long period of time and they're core microbiome is kind of at a reduced capacity and the C. diff that exists just as a part of our normal flora um, is incredibly opportunistic and just like explodes. Um, and that leads to severe GI distress, malabsorption issues, um, C. Uh, C. diff diarrhea is like a huge issue um, and causes a lot of complications and can even be deadly. Um, if, like if you're not absorbing nutrients and you're dehydrated because yeah. you can't yeah, have, you can't control that. Yeah, I mean, sounds like it would be brutal. Yeah. And then the way in which we treat that is largely either through antibiotics, but sometimes it's resistant to antibiotics and we can't, um, it may be not even just like not traditional antibiotic resistance, but just that the antibiotics can't completely eradicate it. They, it mm -hmm. just doesn't knock it down entirely and it can grow back up again. Yeah. Um, uh, but then the gold standard, which we kind of talked about um, when before hopping on this call, is fecal microbiota transplantation, um, which is where you take the microbiome, the fecal microbiome of someone that is quote unquote healthy, and you transplant that into um, an individual with an active C. diff infection that is resistant to antibiotic treatment. 
um, or has continually relapsed um, just due to treatment fail failure. Um, and that seems to be one of the best methods for eradicating C. diff infection. Um, it's uh, just thought to be that introducing that uh, large, densely packed uh, microbiome into um, the gut is just able to suppress the level of C. diff and outcompete it um, to where it kind of falls back into its normal. I'm just going to kind of hang out in the back range um, and not not overgrowth to complications. Real quick, so is that ingested in like pill form? Like, what's the method you of can, transportation. You can do it both ways. <laughs> so it can be capsulated form, but it has to be very, um, there are very specific methods for capsulating it where you could take a pill form. Um, and then you could also do um, kind of like a, a suppository-esque form, um, which would be done in a hospital and you would um, have that fecal sample introduced into your, your colon or your um, upper and lower colon. Um, Is that more effective? Uh, I'm not a hundred. Uh, I need to read up on the research more, but just knowing about the microbiomes interactions in general, it, in my opinion, would be more effective. It's more direct. It's a more mm -hmm. direct method to get it there. Um, if you take it in pill form, um, the large risks are there are people that are have kind of DIYing this at home um, because you can buy pill, pill capsules that say that they're, you know, um, secure and like not going to release until you get to the, to the gut. Um, but the issue is that if it releases in the small intestine or in the stomach, uh. you are going to have like severe <laughs> infection. Um, yeah. You can develop SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where you basically, we typically, don't have a ton of bacteria that reside in our small intestine compared to our colon. The majority of them are within the colon. The environment in the colon is just more um, beneficial for those microbes to thrive. Um, and we don't want them in the small intestine because that's where we predominantly absorb our nutrients. So like all of our macronutrients and a lot of our vitamins and minerals. And if the bacteria are there, they're competing for our enzymes uh, with our enzymes to like metabolize and absorb nutrients. And that could lead to malabsorption, which is a complication of SIBO. Um, so when you have your bacteria that uh, um, bloom and grow in your small intestine, that's pretty, it's painful, uncomfortable, um, and can lead to some serious complications, especially with like nutrient deficiencies. Um, so yeah, DIY at home is not recommended. Um, and it's, I guess it should be important because we kind of got here through C. diff to say that people aren't doing this to necessarily treat C. diff infections. Um, a lot of them are, there was a hype several years ago, and I guess the hype is still ensuing, um, that there were mouse studies in which they took, they had an obese mouse and a lean mouse, um, and they transplanted their microbiomes with each other. So the obese mouse got the lean mouse's microbiome um, through this fecal microbiota transplantation, the obese mouse lost weight. The lean mouse um, got uh, transplanted with the obese mouse microbiome. The lean mouse gained weight. Um, and so that was kind of like proof of concept that, okay, these microbes are doing something uh, for us metabolically. Um, and that was, you know, some of the early research with the microbiome um, and looking at its, how it's influencing overall host metabolism and health. Um, and people are still latching on that today to say that, okay, well, maybe our microbiome influences our weight. So let's, uh, I've got a skinny friend, so let, let's go transplant their microbiome into mine. And then it's like, okay, and then I'm going to lose weight. Uh, so, uh, and then people are saying that it treats 
different conditions because uh, it's just the field of microbiome is uh, riddled or just gut health in general is just riddled with pseudoscience. Um, so it's, it's a fun field to be in because you do a lot of myth busting. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was thinking even just with the mouth study, cause I did, uh, I did hear a little bit of that. I was watching a, a talk that somebody was giving at a, like a nutrition conference that was on YouTube mm-hmm. and even just hearing you describe it there, it would appear to like the most telling evidence that I would take from swapping the two. My first thought is like, okay, you would think that the healthy person's gut microbiome would remain healthy. And that the unhealthy one would get fixed because just like from a, like a dilution of healthy gut microbes that are being present, you wouldn't think that these bad ones could just overrun the good ones the same way the good ones could overrun the bad ones. So I'm thinking to myself, like that almost shows nothing. Yeah. Like, cause I, I wouldn't like, yeah, I would think that you would want to, you would want to prove that the good ones are going to continue to be good and the bad ones are going to be able to be overridden. So that just seems a little bit perplexing to me. And that's the, that kind of uh, goes along with why we, our thoughts along probiotics and their effectiveness. So in a general, like healthy population, um, if you have no other underlying condition, um, specifically like a gastrointestinal condition, so IBS, uh, IBDs, celiac disease, something like that, there doesn't appear to be a benefit of taking probiotics for that same reason. You're introducing, like I mentioned, you have trillions of microbes that reside in your your intestines. And most of the probiotics that we can take are at best in the billion range. Um, And when you compare billion to trillion, like a lot of people don't realize that there is just a a, like logarithmic difference within that. And it's, um, it's really just a drop in the bucket when you, when you think about, okay, well, you're taking a probiotic that says it has 50 billion um, colony forming units in there. Um, And okay. So how much is that compared to the microbes that are there? Um, And if you have like a healthy population there, they're just going to suppress and not allow um, those that you're introducing to really take resonance or thrive um, because they're very competitive, they're competitive um, bacteria. They're, I'm going to fight for nutrients and those that are in greater abundance are going to do better. And it's just survival of the fittest. Yeah. I was also thinking about um, if we like are evaluating the gut microbiome as like, it's quite funny just thinking about it, that it's probably, it's arguably the most important microbiome that our body has, but it's probably the most difficult to gain access to like a true sample of like you were explaining. Are, and I don't know if you know this because I know your emphasis has been primarily on the gut microbiome, but you're mentioning like the oral microbiome and the skin microbiome. Could those be indicators of like, could healthy skin and oral microbiomes be indicators of a healthy gut? Hmm, that's a good question. I just with my understanding, again, like you mentioned, it's not not my area of research and not an area that I'm like super well versed in. Um, and in comparison with the like gut microbiome, they are even younger um, in their like fields of research. But um, the one that would only make sense to me would be a correlation between your oral microbiome and your gut microbiome, just mm-hmm. due to the um, just where it exists. Um, it's still in in the gastrointestinal tract per se. Um, but 
the large difference is that those environments are incredibly different. So your skin, your environment is very different from your oral and your gut environment. Um, And so when we think of the gut, the reason it changes the density and populations of microbes, the reason they change so extensively along our GI tract, going from stomach to small intestine to large intestine. Um, So we have very, very few microbes that exist in the stomach. That's good. We don't want a lot there. Um, They don't thrive in the highly acidic environment. And we have a fair amount of oxygen that exists there as well. As we move into the small intestine, the acidity starts to lower um, and the oxygen starts to lower. Um, And then as you get into the colon, you have a pretty anaerobic environment, very minimal oxygen, um, and the pH is pretty um, high or so not very acidic. Um, down there. And that's where the bulk of our microbes thrive. So environment matters. So um, there there are definitely microbes that exist um, both within our mouth and within our gut that are the same species. Um, but for the vast proportion, um, their populations, looking at them broadly, are going to be very different due to um, nutrient availability and then environmental considerations like oxygen and pH. And then, okay, my other question was with a, with a healthy individual who, you know, by all metrics that we can measure has a healthy microbiome, mm-hmm. would it, because you were saying that what is present in the feces is primarily the things that are the body's trying to excrete. Mm-hmm. If somebody is eating a healthy, uh, you know, healthy diet, I don't even know what that means anymore, but if somebody's eating a healthy diet and as far as we can tell has a healthy microbiome. Um, would it be safe to assume that the, what they are excreting is probably just an excess of what they already have, um, as opposed to somebody who's like got things that they actively need to be getting rid of. So like in a, in a, uh, evaluation of a healthy stool sample, would that be the closest representation to somebody's gut microbiome we can get, or is it still not really quite that, uh. It's definitely like, aside, there are mechanisms where we can take mucosal microbiome samples, but you can imagine that's basically a colonoscopy like environment, incredibly invasive, like not most people are going to sign up to do that. So we do have like relative correlations between, okay, we think that this percentage of your stool microbiome correlates to this percentage of your core microbiome, um, all things considered, but there's just, I think in the field of research with humans, especially, um, uses is going to have to rely on stool microbiome samples. Um, so we're just going to have to get better at figuring out, okay, like in this specific condition or in this population, what percentage of the core microbiome is explained by the stool microbiome. Um, so the, the field is largely associative and uh, it probably will still have to remain that way to an extent um, for a lot of people um, until we can get some better research evidence using people that are willing to uh, give samples of their mucosal microbiome. Cool. So you can, it's long story short, it's probably the best, it's the best measure that we have uh, as far as accessibility um, for human, for human assessment of the microbiome, but it just, we have to be clear that it just has limitations. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many factors. We, like you talking about the mouse, uh, the mice uh, in that study, like they're in a very controlled environment to where they're getting the same amount of food, like at the same time. And like, that's just not what people are doing. Yeah. And they're all, you know, have the same genetic background and they're breed, uh, bred, at, bred, 
bred the same. Um, and yeah, the environment they live in is very controlled. We even have facilities where we can study what we call germ-free mice. Um, so mice that yeah, heard don't that. have a microbiome sterile at all. Mice. Yeah, and they're basically just, sterile. Yeah. yeah. And so that tells us a lot about just the role of the microbiome um, in various conditions because we can study mice that have a microbiome and mice that don't have a microbiome and see how that impacts um, different things. And so those mice are even more tightly controlled in which they don't, you know, get human interaction outside of like they're in like a bubble and you have to mess with them in a bubble. And um, yeah, so we have some very regimented and controlled conditions in which we can study the microbiome, but we have to realize that it doesn't always translate. Mm -hmm. It's a good start. I'm, yeah, I'm hopeful. it's a good start. Yeah. Um, another buzzword that gets thrown around is leaky gut. Uh, what is that? And why is my gut leaking? Yeah. Potentially. <laughs> so leaky gut is largely um, what we refer to in the scientific community um, that studies gastrointestinal health um, is we call this intestinal permeability. Um, so basically the cells of our intestine um, are pretty tightly uh, sealed um, and don't allow much to pass through um, their like spaces between them. Um, so we have various different proteins that seal that gut barrier. Um, and we also have different components that participate in the gut barrier. Um, so we have like immune cells that help mediate that. We have that mucin layer, like I was talking about, that helps kind of seal it as well. Um, and so leaky gut really just means intestinal permeability. Um, and the term leaky gut has been latched onto by like functional medicine um, and things like that um, because we we are able in a uh, experimental environment, so with mice, um, with cell culture, um, and to an extent with certain with certain very tightly controlled human populations, we can assess intestinal permeability. Um, and there were some uh, earlier studies that showed that like a high fat diet in mice increased intestinal permeability. Um, and then we know individuals that have active inflammation or issues within their gut might have uh, an increased intestinal permeability, which basically just means that that barrier is kind of breaking down a little bit um, and is not as tightly sealed. Um, and so that was the issue that uh, exists with that largely um, is our bacteria, when that's not sealed tightly, can components of them um, can leach into circulation, um, and that's thought to cause inflammation throughout the body. So the most common one you'll see is called LPS or lipopolysaccharide, also known as endotoxin. Um, it's a component of gram-negative bacterial cell wall. It gets um, into circulation and it's pretty inflammatory. Um, so for a lot of cell culture experiments that aren't even studying um, like gastrointestinal stuff, they will use LPS or endotoxin as like a positive control for an inflammatory mediator um, or inflama and, uh, inflammatory like insult um, because it is just so inflammatory and causes so many issues. Um, the issue with people terming it leaky gut is that we don't have any like clinical assessments to assess someone's intestinal permeability. There's nothing that's gold standard. Um, and a lot of people that are, they're basically telling everyone now that they have leaky gut, like these functional medicine, um, like practitioners are telling everyone that they have leaky gut and that the symptoms associated with leaky gut are fatigue and brain fog. And maybe you feel like bloated sometimes. And it's like, okay, well, everyone has dealt with those conditions at some yeah. point. I hate when people use the term brain fog for 
and fatigue for like describing like conditions, especially related to the gut. Um, because they're so like subjective, (laughs) like, yeah. And like you said, like a lot of this stuff just comes down to it being a snapshot. Like you could have eaten like a huge meal, like, and you're getting a big like blood glucose response and like, you could just feel like crap. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that like you have to label like the post meal feeling, Oh, you must have leaky gut. It's totally irresponsible to do that. Yeah. They do that with SIBO too, which is why it's the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. They tell everybody they have SIBO without doing the proper testing um, and measures to do to like assess it. Um, Leaky gut is even more pervasive with uh, like, I'm just going to tell you, you have it and not going to do any, any tests to to actually measure it because there aren't any gold standard tests to measure it. Um, So that's something when people come to me and say, okay, I was told by this person that I have leaky gut. I'm like, Okay, but uh, let's like, what are we going to actually do with that information? If it, if like, let's say you have a leaky gut, like we know certain dietary practices that can, that are just supportive of overall GI health. Um, We're going to target those. We're not going to like, there's no specific cure, like, just like there's no diagnosis for leaky gut, there's no identified cure for it um, in like even animal models too. Um, so we just have to focus on things that we know are more supportive for an intestinal environment. Um, and that usually gets them to like, okay, well, you, you're having GI issues. You were told that it's leaky gut. Let's address the other GI issues because it's not leaky gut. <laughs> um, we don't know that you have leaky gut. So, yeah. Could, could you have like a, a leaky gut experience just after one meal that goes away immediately after? Like, There are studies that show that certain, like, that our intestinal permeability can flux. Um, There are certain, like, and these are, of course, like, cell culture and animal models. But, like, um, after certain, like, feeding, like, certain high-fat feedings, you can see an increase, a transient increase in intestinal permeability. Um, Even after exercise, you can see an increase in intestinal permeability. Um, Does that mean that exercise is bad and we shouldn't do it? Like, and so it's not necessarily like black and white. Like we know exercise is beneficial um, just because you see like in a laboratory setting an increased intestinal permeability doesn't mean that your intestine is leaky for forever. Um, our intestinal cells can turn over relatively quickly um, and can repair themselves relatively quickly, which is good. Um, they go through a lot of wear and tear with the digestive process. Um, and so there's definitely a lot of transient effects that go on there as well, um, which kind of breaks down people's argument with leaky gut a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts on fasting and does that have an impact on the gut microbiome? And I know it's different for a lot of people, but. Yeah. So with fasting in in general, um, it's kind of, it's a hot topic area of research, um, but it comes with a lot of caveats, like everything else in nutrition um, with the gut microbiome specifically. Um, there have been no like very strong studies that have shown any long-term meaningful changes um, with fasting in the gut microbiome. Just like I was talking about intestinal permeability being in flux, our gut microbiome is constantly in flux. It's thought to have its own like circadian rhythm. Um, and so kind of we'll see spikes um, and shifts within our bacterial population just with normal eating patterns. So you eat a meal, you have this bloom in bacteria, it kind of goes back down and it just, our bacteria seem to have kind of like their own rhythm um, that kind of is impacted by our circadian rhythm that, um, 
that it just exists naturally within us, but then also just our dietary patterns. Um, so yes, you can see changes in the microbiome with basically any dietary habit change. Um, and so if you are fasting, you can see changes in the microbiome, but typically those changes recover after you, um, you resume eating. Um, so they don't really translate to really any meaningful difference. Um, and then with fasting for like overall health, what everything, what everyone always touts is like the concept of like autophagy. I just um, wrote that word down. <laughs> which is another thing that annoys me because people that like a lot of people that tout it don't actually understand what it actually is. Um, so autophagy, autophagy is just a program of cell um, kind of like degradation to like degrade faulty components um, and just kind of like a mechanism of maintaining healthy cells. It's just basically like turnover. Um, so mechanism for de de degrading cellular and protein material within our cells so that they can continue to function at an optimal manner. Um, so what everyone always touts is that um, fasting uh, like uh, improves autophagy, increases autophagy. So everything is just um, more improved. And it's just that a lot of those studies have only been done in very like tightly controlled environments, um, don't really translate to any meaningful outcomes. Um, where people with fasting, if we look at the totality of the evidence, most of the evidence that people tout for fasting um, is achieved to the same extent by caloric restriction. Um, so caloric restriction in the absence of fasting is going to achieve most like often the same metabolic and health effects that just um, that they're touting that fasting or time-restricted feeding is doing. It tends to be coming down to energy balance, which makes sense um, within our bodies. Like our bodies run, uh, like most of our processes are just very tightly regulated on the concept of overall energy balance. Um, so not surprising factor that we see that caloric restriction exerts largely the same amount of effect as like a time-restricted feeding um, with calories controlled. Um, so there have been studies um, and more recently some uh, larger scale, like uh, I think about 100 participants, like randomized uh, controlled clinical trials that have looked at time-restricted feeding compared to those were that were just allowed to like freely eat. Um, they didn't see really any significant differences in metabolic and health outcomes. Um, they did see that, I think the study, they did see that individuals in the time-restricted feeding group actually lost more lean body mass, which is kind of a concern um, because we want to maintain as much lean body mass as we, as we want to. Um, so that's like an area of research that needs to be like studied a little bit more. Um, so when people come to me and ask me like, is fasting, like, should I, should I fast? Um, it's likely not harmful. It's, you know, we have research that shows that it can be beneficial for certain people. Um, but it's again, largely going to come down to like your caloric. It's just a mechanism to control calories. Um, and some people thrive on that mechanism and some people, some people don't. Some people find that by restricting their feeding windows, um, they are, their hunger is better controlled and their cravings are better controlled. Some people find that by restricting themselves to those feeding windows, they have like binge-like episodes and can't, can't control their hunger. And they just like Guilty. are, are <laughs> out of, you know, they can't do that. Um, so people can fall into both camps. Um, not surprising that we have differential differences there because it exists through throughout an entire field of nutritional science. Um, so with fasting, there the evidence is not strong enough for me to say like it's more metabolically and overall healthy um, 
mechanism of eating, but if it works for you, it works for you. And uh, optimally, most like the most optimal diet that you can follow is one that is sustainable and works for you. Even if you're not not attempting to restrict your calories or anything, the mecha- the uh, best method of eating is one that fits into your lifestyle and doesn't cause you undue stress um, and can be sustainable. So, well, and one thing I've heard about autophagy too um, is that first of all, I've heard that it's like drinking a cup of coffee increases your autophagy. Yeah, like I've heard there's so many triggers. Exercise for does. Yeah, an exercise, yeah. and people just want to like use this. Um, fasting silver bullet of like, oh, autophagy, like it's great. But then I was, and again, I like, I read a lot of stuff on the internet, so I'm not going to WebMD doctor myself here, but um, I've heard a lot about how autophagy is like, people look at it as like this bottomless well of like, oh, I'm just going to get into autophagy like, like four or five times a month. And like for the next 30 years, I'm going to constantly be getting the benefits of autophagy, but it's not an unlimited resource that we have access to. And I think what a lot of people don't like, and I don't know if it, if I was hearing this in the context of like, um, telomere length and longevity Mm -hmm. and like lifespan predictions, but there's like, we, I think arguably we need autophagy probably more as we age. So if you're depleting all of your resources to like utilize autophagy in your youth, that may, we don't know if that's going to be good or bad or not. Yeah. I, so I think there's that's like the, so much un, misunderstood stuff going on with autophagy. Yeah. And I think that's the, that that's the like silver bullet, like with autophagy is people, it's not as black and white as people want to say, like it's not, there are studies that show that autophagy is increased in certain cancers. Like, are we going to say that that's good? Like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing black and white about, like about it, just like there's nothing black and white about anything in science. Um, and people tend to get like one, one health guru will say like it increases autophagy and that'll get like jumped on and people will just kind of like regurgitate that same message. But then you also have to think about, so on top of not having long-term evidence to show that it really provides a long-term benefit because, okay, we're all correlating this with like a, you know, better longevity, you know, better aging process, but this research is still so it's, it's young too. Like we don't have those long-term studies to see if it's okay. Is this actually make a benefit in the like long-term aging process? Um, And then also like, if you see an increase in autophagy, what is that like, is it statistically significant or is it like physiologically relevant. Like there's a difference there. Like you can find statistical significance without something truly being like clinically significant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are so many confounding factors. Like if somebody fasts, maybe their diet is getting better and they're more mindful of what they eat and they started exercising with fasting. And so they're getting better sleep. And now they're like, wow, all my symptoms are gone. I feel fantastic. (laughs) And that's like the, that's a big issue in nutrition research is that like I've, and blanking on what we actually have a term for it, but it's just like basically a domino effect of like healthy, healthy behaviors. So say you're studying like a, like a diet um, intervention in uh, a certain population. And just for the fact that they know that they're in some sort of nutrition study, whether they're in placebo or, or like the actual intervention group, just the fact that you, that they know that they're in some sort of nutrition study might make them more, uh, uh, 
apt to change other healthy behaviors. So maybe they get some more movement and maybe they drink more water, um, things like that. So that's something that we have to combat a lot in nutrition research as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I'm, when it comes to, you, you were also talking about the idea of like a lot of the benefits can just be found through calorie restriction. And so like the last few days I've been, cause I, I, I have to admit, I like to test on myself, <laughs> even though I'm not like, so like, I'll try the fasting and like, I'll give it a shot, but like, I don't really know what I'm doing all the time. So <laughs> last, last few days I've been doing, I don't know if there's a name for it, but the, I've been trying to, yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to name it after myself. <laughs> um, I've been doing the, um, like circadian biology type of eating schedule. So like when it suns come, comes out, I eat when the sun goes down, I stop eating. Just to try, because, you know, I've been hearing a lot about like people will eat for 15 hours if you let them have access to food nonstop. And I've been thinking a lot about how a lot of the decisions I make on this stuff is like, okay, well, like a million years ago, how would humans have done it? Yeah. And like, and I think to myself, like, well, okay, if I was afraid of lions in the middle of the night, I wouldn't have gone out hunting. So yeah. like maybe there would have been small amounts of food, but likely I would have gotten up first light and like tried to find food for the whole day. Yeah. That's kind of how I've been doing it. Um, but I think that the biggest thing I found, even just in the few days that I've been doing it so far is that it does help me with limiting my food intake throughout the day. I know that because I am a total, like when I do an intermittent fast and I'll just skip breakfast some days, like just because like I'm working and not thinking mm-hmm. about it too. Um, and I will absolutely binge at night, like terribly, <laughs> yeah. like I have, I'm the type of person who has no problem putting away like 5,000 calories in a meal, like just <laughs> like no problem. And like, it's always been a struggle. So um, I think the caloric restriction, just in a, as a societal perspective, like um, observation, um, is like the number one thing that people can do and don't even think about. Like, and Nick and I were talking about this earlier. There's a lot of people who want to do like, what's that one thing I need to add to my diet to fix it? And it's like, oh, maybe I need to do like a protein shake before bed because like that's going to give me all the protein I need while I'm recovering yeah. in my sleep. And it's like maybe you just need to not be in a constant fed state in your body and like, let your body just like not be digesting food. Mm -hmm. And so I found that there's been a lot of benefits to that. So when looking at the like caloric restriction, obviously, like I know that there's been a lot of research done, um, on like severe caloric restriction and there's a lot of negative impacts of that, Mm -hmm. but from just a regular, like couple hundred calories or so deficit a day, um, do we see pretty substantial benefits to the gut microbiome from that in, in the ways that we can research, or is that pretty inconclusive at this point? Uh, it's pretty inconclusive at this point. Um, there are definitely like, you can find studies that, that say in, anything. Um, and <laughs> basically our evidence right now is that caloric restriction can transiently modify the microbiome, but like what's going to happen if you go back to eating, um, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of, the evidence there is not, not super strong. And I don't really feel like, um, I've seen too many studies that have been, that have been focused on that. Um, so pretty cool area of research and it would be cool to study. Um, but going along just the lines of like caloric restriction in general, like you said, we kind of, we had periods of like way, way back, um, where we would be fasting for long periods of time. And yeah, we have some level of like, 
evolvement that has happened since that time. And so we, you know, may be more optimized to eat on a more regular eating pattern now, but it's undeniable that our body does function perfectly fine with some fasting periods and our cellular biology will speak to that. Like we have mechanisms to maintain our blood glucose and to liberate store fuels when we are in a like fasting state or traditional, like what most people are, are in is like a post-absorbative state, which is like the hour, like three to like 16 in which you would traditionally be like fasting for a true fasting state is usually after that. But um, what most people think of is like fasting would be like the post-absorbative state where um, you start to begin liberating like the glycogen stores within your body um, to uh, help mobilize some fuels. Um, So our cellular biology does speak well to that. We are well-equipped to fast, um, even going into like long-term fasting. Like we have fat stores within our body that can keep us running for a long, a long time. We have mechanisms to downregulate like protein, um, like uh, protein and amino acid metabolism so that we can conserve as much as much lean body mass and tissue mass as we as we possibly can. Um, and so we are equipped to do that. And our cellular biology does speak to that. Um, and I think from the like fasting standpoint and kind of like what, what you were doing, like eating at sun up and eating at sundown, I think and this is just me, like just the hypothesizing and thinking I'm not, I'm not a circadian rhythm expert, (laughs) but like our bodies like routine, our bodies like rhythm, our bodies function very well, um, on just like habit and, and routine. Um, and you know, starting your day with food probably gets you going, like it starts you off on a good end, but then most importantly, like the stopping when it gets dark outside, a lot of us don't sleep really well. If we have like a lot of food on our stomach, you may have some like, yeah, you may have some (laughs) reflux. You may have some different dreams. You may feel uncomfortable and distended and just not like you can't, you can't sleep very well. Um, and we know that sleep has a huge impact on our overall health. And so like what percentage of like, um, of, uh, benefit is explained by just the fact that maybe you're sleeping better um, because you're yeah. not going to bed and having nightmares or, you know, having like reflux in the middle of the night because you ate too much food right before you went to bed. Um, so I definitely think there's a lot of like practical relevance in that. But I do think going back to the like main uh, comment that a lot of our like beneficial health outcomes in nutritional science are driven by the underall, like overall, like concept of caloric restriction or energy balance. Um, most everything can be explained by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, in all types of health, I feel like the placebo is such an important factor that I know it's more so on the rise and like being utilized and really being emphasized now. But like, I feel like with this, just since it is so uh, diverse and personalized to each person, like with nutrition, like the placebo is so important and just um, really motivating people to keep uh, healthier habits. Yeah. Placebo effect is a huge thing. And like, you can truly feel like benefits from anything because you can convince yourself that you feel benefits from it. The mind is like a crazy, crazy powerful tool. And that's especially prevalent in like GI issues um, because our gut and our brain are innervated and connected through various mechanisms. Um, So like, stress can impact your GI symptoms, but you can also stress yourself out um, about having GI symptoms and then give yourself GI symptoms from thinking. It's like uh, the, the mental aspect that comes into play there is, is pretty strong, especially when it comes to the, the gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a pretty significant crossover with um, like mental health and uh, gut health. 
Yeah, there is. Um, it's called, so we have, it's been termed the gut brain axis. Um, so our gut is connected to our brain through various different mechanisms. Um, one largely uh, being the like physical connection of the vagus nerve. Um, and we also have what's called our enteric nervous system, which is essentially the nervous system that helps with like our gastrointestinal motility um, and things like that. And so our GI tract is very much innervated um, and connected to our um, nervous system. Um, and another communication in which the gut communicates with the brain is through the production of different neurotransmitters um, and different things like that, and through the production of those short-chain fatty acids, which are thought to have impacts there as well. Um, but again, this this area of research is not, not super well understood. Um, my husband, during his PhD, so he, we got our PhDs in the same in the same field, um, he was doing both doing gut microbiome research, but he was doing it with Alzheimer's disease. Um, looking at the, uh, there is, does seem to be interaction between the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so he was studying that, um, in rodents, giving them, uh, like, uh, MRI scans and a little tiny mouse MRI, um, and looking at changes in the microbiome and, uh, with, uh, different dietary methods um, and seeing if that improved Alzheimer's disease. But um, sadly, Alzheimer's disease is not most research, especially in the nutrition field um, with Alzheimer's disease has come up like empty handed. Um, mm. It's, it's a really terrible condition. That's just not, not well understood at all. And treatments don't seem to work. And, you know, if they work for one person, it doesn't seem that they're going to work for the other person. And yeah. All right. We're sending me down an Alzheimer's rabbit hole now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have, I have two questions now. <laughs> One, the term terminology being used, I've heard on multiple occasions of um, Alzheimer's being type three diabetes. Mm-hmm. Is that fairly, like, is there pretty stable evidence to support that it's got something to do with like overconsumption of carbohydrates and the inability, like there's something, and I'm probably, I'm going to get my, um, my like hormones and everything wrong here, but something about like your body's inability to, or your brain's inability to continue to like shuttle insulin properly. And like, so then insulin or, um, one of the other chemicals that your, our body produces cannot get in, no longer can get into the brain to help pull the, um, like blood sugars out of our brain. And like, there's something going on there. Like, I don't know how much you know about that. Cause it may be, it's uh, the I, not a lot at all. Um, <laughs> it, I will admit that I don't know a lot about the like type three diabetes, but like I do I said, know that you. Hole. Yeah, I do know, and my husband's and I forget what he he actually studied an aspect of that um, for his for his dissertation, which shows how much I paid attention. But yeah, um, you're on, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there is like you are correct in the term that they do like we do see like glucose control issues. In, in, in patients that have Alzheimer's disease fairly frequently to the point in which it's been termed type three diabetes. Um, I don't know a lot about the like pathology and like etiology of it though, um, with what exactly is going on. So I don't, I won't even try to try no to worries, guess. No that. worries. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave, we'll stop my rabbit hole there then. Yeah. <laughs> Not get too off topic. I know this is a topic that Brendan brought up with me uh, a little earlier. Um, but thinking more on like a macro level and like a sociological level, what is it do you think uh, about people really like joining these groups or communities 
like a carnivore diet or like a keto or vegan and like really being all in that. I have a theory on this too. It's uh, we thrive on having support systems. Like it's the reason people do well on some of those diets is because they have that support system and there's, we thrive on like social, like social aspects, especially right, like right now where all of us are like isolated essentially from a lot of people. Um, even on like the online community, it might be helpful to have like a message board for your like car, uh, carnivore friends where you can talk about, you know, different issues. And uh, there, I, I, there is a large mental aspect to um, like dieting and having that support system. Um, and some people, sometimes people just want people to talk to and like, it can be incredibly therapeutic just to have someone to talk to. Um, so I do think, yeah, I don't know exactly what question you were getting. At, I can't remember exactly what question you were getting at, but um, there is a large like support system component to those groups for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I might, I might dig in on it a little bit further too. And I'm curious, I'll give you my stance on it and then I would love to hear yours. So my stance on it is that um, the, all of the things that make somebody do like become a vegan and love it and become a carnivore and love it. Cause those are the two extremes of the spectrum at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think they're achieving the exact same thing, which is cutting out a lot of the garbage foods. Mm-hmm. And I think on top of that, th- and this is actually a newer, um, like thought that had come to, that had been exposed to me. And so I was just hearing about this idea that, and like we were talking about, your body's got these mechanisms intentionally. Like we evolved to be able to eat. Like we clearly have people who can eat vegan and people who can eat carnivore. I think we can all probably do both Mm -hmm. and our body's designed to be able to fluctuate back and forth. But what may be happening is when people go full like carb heavy for such a long time, they shut off some of the mechanisms of like their fat metabolism maybe. And like being able to like tap into a ketogenic state at some points Mm -hmm. in time, because evolutionarily, like we likely needed to. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, so like when people go full blown carnivore, it's not that they're like finding some like revolutionary thing. It's just, they're reactivating their ability to then tap into that as well. And then they're able to like bounce back and forth. And I know there's a lot of autoimmune stuff that goes on that, um, you know, the carnivore diet has been really proven to be helpful with. Um, and I personally include meat in my diet because I think there's a lot of benefits to having, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with butcher box, but I like try and keep my meat quality, like very high quality as often mm-hmm. as I can. Um, but yeah, I think that there's something that we, we've gotten to the extremes, I think to bring us back to the middle, which is like, we need to be exercising both ends of this spectrum of like, again, I like to go evolutionarily. Like if we came across a bush full of berries, when we were out, like looking for food, we probably just like ate all of them, <laughs> you know? Yep. And then, and then we hunted and we got, we like caught an animal or whatever. And like, we just ate that. And I th- so I think we just have these systems that are able to go back and forth and people want to like, again, to use the term silver bullet, like people want to find the one thing, but like, I don't know that long-term forever keto is like the best thing. And we definitely don't know. Cause there's definitely not yeah. been research. Yeah. And on the other hand, like we see a lot of health issues that come up with people who tend to go vegan. Like there's vitamin deficiencies. I know B12 is a huge one. Um, 
So I just think that like people want to find these things and we're somewhere in the middle. And I think evolutionarily we can find evidence for like, we're probably somewhere in the middle. Oh yeah. Evolutionary, evolutionarily speaking, we, we can function on both ends of the spectrum really well. And it's like you said, it's probably not optimal, optimal to focus to like function on only one end of the spectrum for the entirety of your life. Um, because we have these mechanisms in place to ship back and forth for a reason. Um, and you know, I, I don't know how strong the evidence is that, you know, if that we should be using them a certain amount of time, you know, we should be using more, uh, you know, carbohydrate degradation pathways and metabolism pathways versus more fat metabolism pathways. But I don't think there's evidence to suggest that, but, um, there is evidence like to suggest that we, we can use both perfectly fine. Um, and so, and like you mentioned, both the vegan group ethics aside, from this whole talk, if we're just talking about overall health, um, so like ethics, environmental factors aside, yeah, yeah. if we're just That's talking a, about like yeah. health concerns um, and dietary concerns, um, they're both yelling the same thing. Yes, but achieve, but wanting the same goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you mentioned, most of them are just eliminating those like ultra processed foods, which we can pretty much all agree. Like they can, they can fit into a healthy diet, but should we be relying on like yeah. ultra processed foods for the entirety of our diet? No. And I would argue like going down a rabbit hole, um, or off on a tangent and hopping up on my soapbox. I hate Do the it. term plant-based diet. I absolutely hate it. I think it's a dumb term because the majority of us, aside from those of us that are eating a carnivore diet, the majority of us, no matter what we eat, even if you're eating an ultra processed food diet, you are eating a diet that is arguably Mm plant-based. Like Mm -hmm. most of that food has come from plants. So aside from those of us that, or not those of us, I don't need a carnivore diet, but aside from the people that eat a carnivore diet, most of us just naturally are going to eat a plant-based diet no matter what. Um, and so I hate the term plant-based because I know what they're getting at. They're getting at a more vegan-based diet. Um, but well, I think the term we- now is whole foods plant-based diet. That's the okay. that's okay. the new way of saying it, I guess. But still, yeah, I mean, I, but I get still that would that would describe my way of eating. And I eat include meat in my diet. Like yeah. I eat eggs and dairy and meat products, and mm-hmm. I still arguably would eat more plants and more whole food plants than I would like meat products, which I mean. I think most people can achieve pretty easily without putting a lot of like thought into it because most of our food system and like products that we have that are available for purchase, whether they're whole food or processed are somehow (laughs) plant-based. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Um, I want to talk too about like, as we talk about all these different fad diets, I think another thing that comes up, very often in my mind is different types of like social stigma around food. Um, and like this idea that you like have to be managing your weight and like your food intake because you have to manage your weight. And like, I get that, like, you know, lean body mass is like an indicator of health, but there's so many indicators for health. Um, and as we were talking about, um, the idea of having, uh, like a caloric restriction as part of your your meal plan in in some ways. Um, I was thinking a lot about like, so we're in California. So like the, you know, people are pretty progressive out here, but we even get 
a pretty serious push for like, especially young kids. And I don't know if this has anything to do with it. And I'm kind of dipping into Nick's realm here in psychology, but (laughs) we do a lot of pushing like, Oh, you got to eat up. You got to be big and strong. Like, and we send this message of like, eat, 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 eat. Um, and we're not making any like significant progress on this obesity epidemic that's going on through this country. So, um, where do you find that like this social stigma piece is like failing most people? And like, how do you maybe look at your role in like as a teacher and as a, um, a dietitian to like kind of have a positive impact on people's like, uh, relationships with food. Cause I know that that's an important yeah. part of your story too. Yeah. And so I do like in my, like own personal philosophy with nutrition, I tend to fall more into like what people would term like intuitive eating. Um, so I don't actively track calories. I don't, you know, actively track macronutrients that I'm eating. I may, you know, reflect on like, okay, what do I think I ate that day? Kind of like, what am I, am I eating enough? Am I not, you know, am I eating too much? Am I getting enough protein? I may assess those type of things, but in general, I fall into like more of the intuitive eating realm which to get at your like mention about children and growing up, we are born intuitive eaters. We know when we're hungry and we know when we're full and what we do throughout our lives, just due to societal influences, the way in which we've been grown up to, you know, in my household, not to like bash my parents, it was just a common thing, but like we had the clean plate club. And so like you were supposed to like clean your plate and it wasn't like something that they made you do, but it was like, we had that terminology. Like you're yeah, I think it's a clean plate club. I think it's and important it's, to just mention yeah. too, with that is that like a lot of these things that I was just explaining are super well-intentioned. Like nobody's yeah. trying to oh, be yeah. like mean about them, but yeah. maybe we're just a little misguided, I guess. Yeah. yeah so, and then sorry. you also have to think about the factor of, okay, like, well, we don't want to waste food, but like also, we don't need to be force feeding ourselves in the like, just because we don't want to waste food kind of thing. Um, but like, we are all born intuitive eaters. We know how to feed ourselves and stop when we get hung, uh, when we get full. And just throughout life, there are so many different factors, like those experiences in childhood, just like cultural factors and societal factors, you know, uh, like the just food environment um, and like complete like advertisements for food that are everywhere. The just ease of food access. Um, we can override those signals throughout our, our lifetime to where we don't really know how to sense when we're truly hungry and when we're truly full. Um, and so that can cause issues with overall energy balance because when those mechanisms are well-functioning, they're well-functioning because our bodies can sense when we need food and when we don't need food. Um, and they can generally regulate our body weight and energy balance pretty effectively. Um, and so my own philosophy is trying to get back to that and trying to focus on that. But um, I do recognize and I work with people that have uh, goals of weight loss and um, it's completely a valid choice. And there are ways we in which we can do that um, healthier, you know, not you don't have to be on a restrictive diet. Um, you don't have to track your calories. You don't have to track your macronutrients. Like, can we just do some basic education on like what a healthy, like building a healthy plate, making balanced meals, assessing your hunger and fullness cues um, and things like that. And so I do, I do think that like the societal factor and like uh, social cultural factor has played like an, a huge role um, in the current status of um 
overall like metabolic health that exists in the U.S. Um, outside of an individual's BMI or body weight, because we know that metabolic health can be poor in individuals with a healthy body weight, and it can be perfectly fine in individuals that we would classify as obese, like um, nothing there is black and white either. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm rambling now. So <laughs> right, I rambled for the whole question, So, <laughs> but it's all relevant. Uh, yeah. like on a societal level and a structural level, there does seem like there's a better push towards uh, healthier habits. Um, but still, like you're saying, the education isn't really there. Like I didn't know anything about really healthy eating or just health in general, kind of. And, and that's a privilege, but until I was like in the last five years of my life, I feel. Yeah. And I don't know what they teach in school now. Cause I feel like it's changed so much. Like math is a completely different subject now, apparently in like elementary school, <laughs> they do division way differently than we all learned. Um, but I don't know what they're teaching in health class, but we certainly like, we were learning the food pyramid back when I was in, in health class. And uh, I mean, I don't know, we maybe spent like a day on it and it's just like, not very, helpful. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's kind of like how I wish they taught you about taxes in school. And we got those, <laughs> like, like we need more life skill development in school. Not, we Definitely. don't need to all learn trigonometry or calculus. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cause then there's these, I, I totally see the positive benefits of these communities of being like a vegan or being a carnivore diet. But then there's these like extremes of these diets to where I feel like some people who aren't informed, they say, oh, maybe I should try this. It looks like it has positive benefits and you don't know what you're really getting into. And then that might have negative effects as well. Yeah. So this misinformed piece. Yeah. And if you don't know what you're, you don't know the full story of what you're getting into in terms of the diet itself, like what micronutrient deficiencies are you going to have to watch out for? Like if you're on a vegan diet, what uh, other components you might have to watch, like both of those like extreme diets have micronutrient deficiencies and complications that can arise from them. If you're not informed of it, there's an issue. Like you're not leading yourself down like a dangerous hole. Um, The other aspect is not being able to, or having someone to help you assess the mental aspect that might come along with that. Are you, some people have a greater propensity for development of an eating disorder. Um, And now we know that it's not in the DSM-5, but it probably will be in the future, like the um, classification of orthorexia. So that extreme obsession with just healthy eating to where it becomes unhealthy. Um, And so that I feel like a lot of individuals in both the carnivore camp and the vegan camp, that those type of extreme diets can put you at risk for that. Um, and just eating disorders in general, if you don't understand your own basic, um, like mental status going into those and your propensity for, um, kind of like, uh, very, uh, OCD like behaviors and, uh, getting very fixated on things. Um, people that are very type A are more, uh, more, uh, at risk for eating disorder development of those kinds too. Um, and so I think there it's important to be fully informed, like, hey, you need to keep tabs or have someone help you keep tabs on your mental status as you're going through this, if this is truly something you want to go through. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I'm happy that we're moving more towards in healthcare in general is a, a more collaborative team so that we can have somebody who is an expert on like nutrition and uh, dietetics and then work with a, a counselor or a medical doctor and um, hopefully 
support the whole person rather yeah, than just sure. like a 15 minute check-in. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's hard. Cause you got to see so many people and even dietitians will tell you a lot of times in the clinical setting, people don't want to hear from us. They're just like, uh, you're just going to tell me to like cut out fast food. Like you're going to tell me to like reduce my calories and get some more exercise and not, not really the case, but uh, we have to combat the factor that people don't want to hear what we have to say. Um, and oftentimes we don't have a lot of time with patients. A lot of dietitians have the same amount of time that, you know, doctors have, you got to run in, assess, get done what needs to get done and, and leave. Um, you really get in the outpatient setting is where you get that one-on-one -on -one time um, with an individual, both from a doctor standpoint and a dietitian standpoint. Yeah. When you talk about these, um, like, when you're like prescribing a nutritional intervention for somebody and like with a goal of, you know, whatever that may be, maybe it's because they have some micronutrient deficiencies and they need to like help revert those. Um, or somebody just wants to do regular weight loss. What do you find? And this could just be observational for you. Um, what do you find being like the number one limiter to adherence to any of these diets? Cause I feel like that's gotta be one of the biggest and most difficult hurdles to overcome is that people just can't stick to it. Yeah, I think, and it, it's probably way more mixed than this. And a lot of people probably have different uh, feelings and it's definitely different in our current environment, but the aspect of just what you, what people will lose from the like social aspect of food, if they have to be on a restrictive diet, um, the like social aspect like food is very social. Like we, nobody will argue that. And a lot of people, like most people will argue that that's not a bad thing. Like it's a way that we connect and bond with each other. Um, and individuals that are on like restrictive diets, they have issues with like engaging in those social, like social aspects of food, which then if we want to go back to like mental health aspects, could uh, the isolation itself could push you into eating disorder, disordered eating territory if you're isolating yourself because you don't feel like you can engage in, in certain food behaviors. Um, and so I'm not someone that would personally ever put someone on a, like a restrictive diet for like caloric reasons. Um, but there are people that I've worked with that have to be on like an example, like a low FODMAP diet for GI conditions, which is a like phased diet approach um, where they have to have like an elimination phase where they remove all these FODMAPs from their diet, um, which FODMAPs, it's an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, um, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols basically just means fermentable carbohydrates um, that cause a lot of GI distress in certain individuals. Um, so mainly working with individuals that have GI issues. Um, so you would uh, remove most all FODMAPs and then slowly introduce them um, later, um, like after a few weeks of like a removal to see which ones you really have an issue with. Um, and that's a really hard one for people to, to do. Um, it's not meant to be long-term. So that's something that you have to tell them too. It's like, this is like eight to 12 weeks, short period of your life. We're going to figure it out. Um, there's probably only one or two food groups that you're or foods that you are like sensitive to and that are causing you a lot of GI distress. We're going to figure out what that is. You can engage in social activities and easily avoid these foods without having the GI ramifications. Um, so keeping in mind that like end goal um, and having that close contact with someone. Um, and that's why I think not trying to like always DIY your, your own diet or like, especially like medical based diets um, because there's a lot that you 
can see from an outside perspective um, that when you're just in your own head, you may not be seen. Um, and there's a there's a lot of value in having someone evaluate you as a person and say, have you thought about this? Um, and kind of assessing for both eating disorder and disordered eating behaviors, but just assessing how you're doing as a as as a whole person, like, are you taking care of your social health? Are you taking care of your mental health? Um, and things like that too. Yeah, I think, you know, and then that reminds me a lot about um, some of the things that I think are the most important about the blue zones. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a lot of people, you know, I'm not going to pin this on one camp or the other, like to talk about the blue zones and their health benefits nutritionally. Yeah. But there's, I mean, there's like seven pillars of the blue zones. Only one of them is nutrition. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a very epidemiological approach to just pin it on and which is a a valuable approach, but it has its flaws and to pin, you know, a nutritional recommendation based on what could be seven other things, which Mm -hmm. I think community is one of the biggest ones Yeah, um, and physical activity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think it's so important and people often overlook the importance. And we were even talking to um, a sports uh, well, he's not a sports psychologist. I, I don't think, is he Brennan? Um, no, no. Okay. He's just a, an MFT, but he, we were talking to him and he teaches a course on, um, like working through loss of sports for athletes and like going through that oh, grieving yeah. process of losing your sport and your identity in that. And one of the things we talked about was the most important thing is get, as you're about to progress through that, you need to make sure you have your support system there set up ready for you. And I think going through, you know, in a, like you're saying, these are highly social experiences where people are experiencing food and to feel like you're having to strip something away can almost in its own way be a loss. Yeah. And I think that if we don't have a proper support system ready to help us navigate that, like you need, I think it's like you need to integrate your social environment into the meal plan. And I think mm-hmm. that sounds so intuitive yeah. to people, but it's also at the same time, like so hard to do because people don't want to be like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm doing my FODMAPs and uh, I can't have all those fermentable carbohydrates. Um, so, and it's like, but if people just talk to the people that are close to them, they're probably like, cool, let's do it. Like, I'm not going to yeah. let you eat those things. Like I'll, yeah. I'm, I'm right there. So I think that community piece is so like, it's talked about, but not nearly enough as the other stuff. And to me, it goes right back to the message you push of just, you, this can't be a stress in your life. mm if, if you're going to stress about it, again, that brain gut connection is going to completely counter counteract any positive influences you're going to try and do nutritionally because you're just going to throw that stress into some other weird reaction. So yeah, I think the community piece is probably the number one thing that people overlook yeah. when it comes to like trying to get these nutritional changes down. Yeah. It, it's such a st- strong component um, that like support system is huge. And that's the reason you see like that's one of the main reasons like why Weight Watchers has been around for so long. Like you get that community aspect there. Is the diet they prescribe that great? No, not really. Like it's, it's a little weird and it still comes down to like the overall concept of like caloric restriction and energy balance, but like you get that community and that can be incredibly helpful for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah. And I should, I always say that like the diet should fit into your lifestyle. You shouldn't have to fit your lifestyle into the diet. Like you should be able, the diet that works for you is the diet that you can sustain both 
at an individual level, but also at like a social level where it's not interfering with other aspects of your life. If you can't sit down and eat with your, if you have kids, like eat a meal with your family, like I have a concern, but if you can't eat like a meal with your family, just because you're on this highly restrictive diet. Yes. If you have medical issues and you're on a medical, like medically prescribed diet, you you might have some issues, but there's still ways to get around that where you can still engage in like a normal eating pattern with, with sitting down at a table with your family. Um, that social aspect is so often ignored and it's a huge component in like overall mental health. Um, and it just plays a large role in, in the food environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that too, like even if it's still a, it's a, a significant stressor on your mind and you do choose to sit down and eat that meal, if it's still something that's really bothering you, then you're going to feel that guilt after. Yeah. And that's like, can be so detrimental as well. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of segueing from this topic, um, I know that this is something that I, you've kind of touched on with us before, but um, how do you see the impact of social media uh, on like well being and um, health? I, it can go both ways. Um, I hope now that those of us that are, combating misinformation are going to be able to kind of be a louder voice. Um, And that's been especially prevalent, like with the, with the pandemic seeing these like science, uh, scientific researchers and people that are like medical professionals come out and educate the public on vaccines and on the pandemic and on public health. Um, It can be like a great tool for like a positive tool. And I feel like historically it's been more negative where we compare our lives to each other, everything that we eat, everything that we share. um, And we forget that it's a highlight reel of people's lives. And you can, that can be a severe um, issue for your own mental health. If you're thinking that, well, this person did X, Y, and Z, and I'm just a crappy person because this is all I did today. I just sat on the couch and did nothing. You know, when, when they don't show the days that they sat on the couch and did nothing, you know, and, and ate fast food and things like that. Um, but I feel like we're, I feel like social media is becoming more transparent and it might just be who I surround myself with and, and things like that, who are, for echoing kind of the same sentiments, but I do hope that that is kind of a more broad trend and that it's being used for educational, um, as an educational platform by people that are, that are qualified to give education, the material, uh, on, on that specific topic, um, and that it's becoming more transparent, um, and helpful, um, so yeah, I'm I'm optimistic about social media moving forward, um, and I hope that it continues to be uh, a way in which we can connect with each other, but a way in which we can communicate important information um, and help get important information to people that really need it. Yeah. yeah. Good. I didn't really have. Oh, that. I was. I, yeah, I was going to just say that. Yeah, I think that the this, I'm kind of feeling the same thing that you just expressed in that we're definitely on this trend of like, and I think it happens with a lot of stuff, but like, you know, people will try and manipulate these like new systems right out the gate. And it's really easy to just like write them off because these like, you know, bad apples have like Mm -hmm. infiltrated social media, but I don't think we can just like write it off because, you know, there's people putting really good information out there. And I think, you know, 
a positive form of confirmation bias is kind of like what you express. Like you're surrounding your people with like like-minded positive people in that way. And like, I think we just all need to get to this point where like, we just stop following the people that are destructive yeah. to our like mental health. Yeah. And just like try and find those like ecosystems of like really good people. I think, you know, this just occurred to me and maybe, you know, if Instagram or Twitter is listening, maybe put like a mental health approved follow icon that me, that's kind of like a, like a green check Mark (laughs) green. We need to get green check marks out there for people who are pushing positive messages so that you can, you know, push aside all the other people. But yeah, I think there's a really, I think there's a really good trend of, uh, more positivity, an educational approach to social media that I think, like you're saying, spreads really valuable yeah. information. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic as well about the uses of social media. Yeah. Sorry. And my dog has heard a door shut and now she's freaking out. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I actually wanted, do you have another uh, question on that topic? I was going to segue again. No, I'm actually, gonna... I was going to jump back to uh <laughs> Definitely jump back. I was just gonna say I, I, that's. I think that's why I really just really appreciated your content, um, like especially on Instagram, because there is so much information uh, packed just within like your own profile, and that's it's awesome to have like such easy access to someone who's studied so much in a specific field. So, yeah, and I've always for- my philosophy with like nutrition and research and things like that is my PhD was largely funded by grants and grant funding comes largely in my instance and in most people's instances from the government. Um, And so from taxpayer dollars. And so I feel like an obligation to give back at least in some way to like communicate like important messages because um, to be honest, like indirectly my PhD was funded by taxpayer money, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I went to a state school and I went to, uh, I was funded under grants. So um, I've always felt like that large responsibility because the research that we're doing is intended to, is funded by the public and intended to help the public. And if we're not taking the extra step and communicating that information to the public, we're doing it a service because those are the people we're supposed to be serving. Um, otherwise, we're just serving other scientists and just telling them, hey, I found this. Um, this might be cool. You might like this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I wanted to ask too about um, your perspective, going back to the microbiome on the use of antibiotics. And, you know, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I I definitely am aware that like heavy use of antibiotics can be really detrimental on our gut microbiome. So I guess my question is more about like, how do we find a balance of like antibiotic use and um, like maintaining good health by, you know, preventing ourselves from getting diseases. And on top of that, how, if we have to take antibiotics, are there some things that we can do to really like rebolster our microbiome quickly? Yeah. So antibiotics are absolutely wonderful. And, uh, when, when they're needed. Um, and so they're definitely something that has, we would be, we would be here if we didn't have antibiotics. I don't know. Like there's, there's a lot of fascinating history in the use of antibiotics and what mm-hmm. they've saved us from essentially. Um, but the, like you mentioned, the issue is when you're taking something orally that is antibiotics. So killing uh, bacteria, essentially it, 
it obviously is going to have an impact on your gut microbiome. And we see that like you can, you can both in animal studies and in human studies, you can see that um, it will significantly knock down populations of, of uh, bacteria within your gut. And that's going to be p- dependent on what type of antibiotic you're using. If it's a broad spectrum antibiotic, if it's a targeted antibiotic, what, what percentage of the bacterial population are you actually impacting? Um, but the, the, I guess the nice thing is that our bacteria, our microbiomes tend to be pretty resilient. Um, and they tend to, after antibiotic exposure, tend to relatively um, quickly, you know, within a few weeks or so, um, repopulate themselves back to what our core microbiome would be. Um, the issue comes along with if you have that chronic antibiotic use, which used to, which used to be more of a problem because they used to just throw antibiotics on everything because they were just this miracle drug. Um, and so that's where we see a, where we would have more of a concern on an individual's microbiome is if you're chronically um, throwing antibiotics onto the gut microbiome. Um, but so for those of us that just have to be on an antibiotic because we have a bacterial infection and we really want it to go away, um, we know that there are some GI effects that come alongside with antibiotic use. A lot of times, um, many people have like antibiotic induced uh, or antibiotic associated diarrhea. Um, there is some evidence that probiotics, specific probiotics can help with some of that um, just symptomatically. There's not a lot of evidence that an individual should take a probiotic alongside an antibiotic. It seems a little futile um, to be trying to throw bacteria onto something you're trying to, you're putting in that kills bacteria. And there isn't a lot of evidence that you should um, take a probiotic after finishing a course of antibiotics. Um, There was a really neat study a few years back that showed that individuals who actually utilize a probiotic after taking an antibiotic, it took them longer to restore their normal bacterial population. Probably just due to your throwing different bacteria in there that are competing for nutrients, not allowing to your core to really thrive. Um, And so the best thing that most people can do um, after and within an, an within taking um, antibiotics is to feed, um, consume a good amount of prebiotics, which just means eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, fiber, um, like whole grains, beans, legumes, if you can handle it, um, eat the level in which you handle. You don't need to go eat like 50, 60, 80 grams of fiber, but um, making sure that you're getting adequate levels of fiber in your diet to help those bacteria that are there, that as they start to repopulate, that's their metabolic fuel for most of them um, and to help them kind of like re reestablish and repopulate. Um, so really the best thing is just to get back into like a normal eating pattern that includes a good, good chunk of prebiotic fiber. And then it makes me think too about, cause you mentioned the fiber piece and you may not be familiar yet because this whole carnivore thing's pretty new, yeah, yeah. but like, it's kind of fascinating that they're like, in some cases, and I don't know what their microbiomes look like. They could be devastated, but, yeah. um, what do you maybe hypothesize is going on with somebody who's getting zero fiber? I, I don't foresee. And I feel like most GI researchers would agree with me that they don't think that that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> like we know that fiber has so many benefits, um, and yeah, if because they're eating carnivore, they're not eating like a lot of carbohydrates. So, you know, you don't necessarily need the fiber for the like blunting the blood glucose response in that instance, but fiber has other healthy effects too. And I can't, I've not seen any research on it yet, but I can't imagine their microbiomes have to be, look vastly different. I They're going to shift 
largely. Um, so we have a lot of like carbohydrate fermenters and protein fermenters. So carbohydrate fermenters are going to do a lot of the fiber metabolism. Protein fermenters are going to are going to metabolize and um, break down that protein. Fat. We do have some bacteria that can metabolize fat, but fat is kind of the macronutrient that our bacteria aren't like they're not actively like looking to to break down for the most part. We pr- prefer like a carbohydrate and protein. Um, they tend to prefer that or they uh, predominate on those two. And so uh, you most likely will see a rapid shift, an upregulation in your protein fermenters. Um, so your protein metabolizing bacteria, which they do produce like a pretty wide range of gases, but we do see a lot of, and this is me just like talking hypothetically about what could possibly happen. Um, but high, like our protein fermenters that produce all of these gases are associated more so with like an unhealthy microbiome distribution, and they're associated with more um, GI issues and GI conditions. Um, so we don't, right now, it's not really, uh, we don't really think it's beneficial to have like a high protein fermenting capacity within the gut. Um, and there is some research that suggests that um, even like with a high protein diet. So that, that would like make you think, so should I not be eating a lot of protein with a high protein diet that also includes a high amount of fiber, you're able to like blunt that gas product, the protein, 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 uh, um, gas production that comes alongside with that. Um, and it's thought to be beneficial. So that's an argument for the incorporation of fiber with the diet that's high in protein as well. Um, and that's, you know, satiety aspect aside, Um, so I just don't foresee, I don't, that's one of my largest complaints with like the carnivore diet is not that you're not eating like carb, like traditional carbohydrates, not that you're just eating meat, but that like you are saying that fiber is not necessary. Um, I don't foresee that going well. And I wouldn't want to live in the same household as you if, if that was, (laughs) uh, if you were eating a carnivore diet, I can't imagine that goes well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things too, like when I look, when I am, you know, sitting back behind my keyboard and like watching and reading stuff about nutrition, um, one of the things I see a lot and I is almost always a red flag for me <laughs> is if somebody's only recommending one diet or saying there's one diet for somebody or oh, yeah. whatever. And that's actually, there's been, obviously there's going to be tons of controversy about this because he is kind of like, I don't know if you are familiar with Paul Saladino. He was on Joe Rogan and he like got a lot of press about his carnivore stuff. Um, yeah, I'm familiar with the name, but I've not looked into him too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched the Joe Rogan interview. He has a couple interesting thoughts on his podcast. But the one thing I have to say about him that I really appreciate is he openly admits all the time that this is not an ideal diet for everybody. And like everybody needs to figure out what's right for them. And he's even, he even played, he's got an autoimmune disorder. Maybe that makes it something right for him. And it's not any, I don't think, I think it's like eczema or something, yeah. like not something super severe, but um, you know, finding the diet that works for you. And he actually incorporates a lot of like honey and he's experimented with right rice. So he's not being so dogmatic about this, which is usually a good sign for me that like, okay, he's trying to really objectively look at this. But one of the, the like most highly cited modern populations of people to look back, like from an ancestral standpoint as to where, um, like how we could potentially model our old way of eating and living is a, Mm -hmm. is a group called the Hadza in Africa. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they eat a, they 
their favorite food, no doubt, they they have been asked because people have gone and studied them, is when they can hunt something. Yeah. That's what they prefer. But they have so many of what Dr. Saladino refers to as fallback foods. Like we don't have these foods that just like plant, we don't have whole foods. We can't just go buy whatever we want in high quantities all the time. So yeah. I think even in the research from both sides, there's a lot of evidence that we like they eat the like a almost like a a high starchy like fibrous root of a tree as one of their primary secondary foods and it just like makes so much sense that like high protein and fiber like it's naturally in their diet like you just said it they they're seeing it like i feel like a lot of this stuff is so evident that like we're both we can do both like yeah. why are yeah. we being so you know one-sided on this so and I fully um, agree with the aspect that, that there's like, there is no one diet that fits, that fits anybody. They're like, there are medically graded diets that are very appropriate for specific people. And there, those diets would not work at all for some other people. Like there are, there are just lifestyle based diets that work great for some people. And then some people are like, I would go crazy on that diet. Like there's, it's silly to think that there's like this one diet that people could eat for just like overall health because health is not just your like internal metabolic health. It's also like your physical, like your, like how much can you exercise? Like, do you have the energy to exercise? Cause people, some people on the ketogenic diet sometimes feel like crap in, in some instances where they don't have that, that rapid energy from carbohydrates, you can adapt to that. But like that a reason why a lot of people quit, but what is your mental health? Like, what is your social health? Like, um, it's, it's absolutely silly to think that there's like this one diet that is just like the gold standard. Everyone should eat it. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I was actually making, I was halfway down a point and like got myself <laughs> on a tangent, um, a second ago, I relate, but, <laughs> but what you were saying about, um, the, like the, if somebody's going too hard on like this keto or carnivore, let's say, and they're cutting out a lot of the fiber. I mean, it would make sense too, that they're also like, and you said that, that, um, protein digesting enzymes in their gut microbiome are going to be, um, like they're going to overproduce and they're going to underproduce. And it just makes sense. Like with this whole idea that we need the metabolic flexibility to bounce back and forth between what we're consuming is like, if, and I think this could be something that we see, unfortunately, in like long term is like if people are going like 5, 10, 15 years, and if they're willing to sustain that for their entire life, then by all means, like yeah. I'm sure they're going to be okay. Like yeah. if they can continue to get all their other micronutrients and all that. But the minute they try and bounce back and try and digest something, it's going to not only like probably not go well because they're not going to have enough of the stuff in their gut to like digest it, but it's also going to be like a negative confirmation that they can't eat that, oh, but yeah. really they've yeah. just underdeveloped their flexibility to go back and forth. Yep. We see so that. We see that with people that have from like a more rapid standpoint, we are digestive enzymes will like flux and downregulate. If you don't need if you're not needing the enzymes to like help digest certain foods because you're not eating those foods, your body's just not going to continue. Like it's not going to waste energy producing stuff that you don't need. Yeah. Um, and so things can upregulate, but it takes time. And so like if individuals go and take those food sensitivity tests that are not valid, not, you know, you can't, that's a whole nother tangent, but um, they're basically told a bunch of foods that they can't eat. And it is in this instance, it's confirmation bias because the tests that they're taking 
are testing for an IgG antibody, which is a like memory marker, which basically just means, hey, you've eaten that food um, relatively in the, you know, at some point or relatively in the, you know, kind of recently. And so people with GI issues will take those tests and be like, oh, it says I'm sensitive to eggs. I eat eggs every single day. No wonder why I feel sick. And it's like, no, you were testing for the foods that you actually eat. But then also if an individual goes further down and follows that dietary recommendation, if they are sensitive to whatever food and they completely eliminate it from their diet, say it's like gluten and they completely eliminate that from their diet, um, and then one day they, down the road, they decide to reintroduce it and give it a shot and they feel like absolute crap after introducing it because they're not digesting it well, confirmation bias. Like you're like, see, I was actually yeah. <laughs> sensitive to it. So, yeah. yeah. Man. So th- then it's this complex, <laughs> th- this takes me down a whole nother route about like supplements. Yeah. And I tend to lean towards like, like whenever possible to not need to supplement Mm -hmm. Um, because I think there's like, you know, for example, like digesting protein from meat versus like getting a powder. Like there's, I think there's cofactors with the meat that probably are beneficial in like the digestive process. Um, Where do you stay? Like, do you, I mean, we, we call them supplements as a society for probably a very particular reason, but do you, where do you stand on supplements? I, my stance is like they should not be replacing your your like normal dietary patterns. Um, there are instances in which they can be helpful. Like we were talking about vegans with B12 deficiency. Like most vegans will need like certain micronutrient supplements, including like B12. Um, it's just something that's naturally going to be deficient in their diet. Some people will naturally need to supplement with iron. Uh, in certain like iron deficiencies. Some people, like if an individual is planning to be pregnant or pregnant, they will need folic acid or folate um, and that helps prevent neural tube defects. So there's a lot of instances in which um, supplementation may be more necessary, but for most people, um, supplements should not take over and like you shouldn't pop a a multivitamin and then go eat like fast food all day because you're like, well, I got my vitamins and minerals covered because I ate, I took a multivitamin this morning. No, they should be there to like correct for any deficiencies or supplement your diet. Um, And then kind of in like the sports realm, like maybe you have a really hard time eating a level of protein at which you yeah, like would be beneficial for your like strength goals or athletic goals or whatever, because we do, do know that athletes do need a little more protein. Um, and maybe you just can't naturally do that. And you add in a protein shake, like, okay, fine. You're just not, as long as you're not eating, that as your only source of protein that I'm fine with that. Um, and then like creatine, pretty well evidence-based research supplement for athletes, like perfectly fine to add that in, but, um, is it going to make like a world of difference? Probably not. Um, and so for most people, like you don't have to waste your money with supplements, um, but they can be helpful in certain conditions. And I typically don't recommend people to like go out and take vitamin and mineral supplements without having a defined need to do so. Um, because certain vitamins and minerals at certain levels can be toxic. Some of them we can store within our body, which if you're getting too much over time can cause complications. Um, you really don't want to be supplementing with something in that instance that you don't need. Um, something else that like the one other supplement that might be beneficial for some people, um, just due to the natural eating pattern of like Americans in general is just like an omega three, uh, supplement. Um, some people just, we don't all eat a lot of fish, 
Um, and some people struggle to eat enough EPA and DHA. So having having that as a supplement can help as well. But my overall belief is it shouldn't be um, the crux of your diet. You shouldn't be considering it a part of your diet. Yeah, I feel like it's too often viewed as um, like a Band-Aid. Yeah. And we're not really well, we taking title it these to... things meal replacements, right? Yeah. Like a shake is a meal replacement. Like that seems silly to me. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I was going to say something and I'll, and I'll lost it. I interrupted Nick too. So he can, it's he fine. Can, <laughs> it'll jog your memory. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Just that instead of adding something to an unhealthy diet, like maybe we should think about just trying to figure out like yeah. the core of what we're doing. And I feel like supplements and like the fitness community that has been so pervasive on Instagram for so long that it's just seems as like the like logical next step of like, oh, well, the next step is just to like load your cabinet with all these supplements and you have to take all of them for good health. And it's just like a necessary step for like the next step in your like health journey when it's like, eh, you're kind of skipping the like nutrition part. That's probably more important. <laughs> Which is probably also the reason that person looks like that in the first place is because they yeah. had that dialed in. I mean, yep. dialed in healthfully or not, but they did yeah. something that in that category to get themselves oh, there yeah. first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Supplements. I mean, outside of like certain like conditions where you're absolutely deficient in certain vitamins and minerals, and it can help alleviate like symptoms of deficiency. Like you're probably not going to see much impact of them overall. They're kind of just like a like micronutrient supplements are kind of just like a safety net, um, for most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, something we also like to ask is, um, if there was somebody who was just interested in getting into this field and possibly becoming a registered dietitian, uh, is there some type of advice that you'd like to give, uh, after reflecting on your own experience? Ooh, uh, m- truly my advice would be to get a lot of advice from a lot of different people to talk to a lot of different people about their experiences. Um, And then another thing with me getting like an advanced degree in my field, I get a lot of people that think like the logical next step in like your educational career is to continue getting like advanced degrees and that you eventually have to go for your PhD. And I'll actually discourage like several people from getting their PhDs because I sit there and talk to them and I'm like, well, what are your overall career goals? And they'll like list different career goals. And I'm like, well, do you really need, need a PhD for that? Can you, can you do that job without a PhD? And a lot of times it's yes. Like a lot of careers, like even as a dietitian, if I wanted to go work as a dietitian in like a clinical hospital or in a community, like different settings, I'm not going to get paid more because I have a PhD. I'm going to get paid for my RD and that's it. So it doesn't give me any like financial advantage in that specific field. The only reason I, well, not the only reason, but like one of the reasons that a PhD was smart for me in the field of dietetics was because I can teach at a university with a PhD, which is something that I have to have in most cases if I want like a tenure track professor position. Um, So I... I think it's very important to like get a lot of um, like different opinions um, and hear a lot of different experiences. Twitter's actually like a really good for like higher education and like RD stuff. Um, Twitter is actually like a really good resource to like hear a lot of people's like thoughts and stuff. There's like academic Twitter and like PhD like thoughts and uh, like tweets around people's experiences, which it can be really helpful to like hear 
like what you're going to be getting yourself into. Um, and then just like reaching out to people. Um, and I feel like I give this advice to people so many times, the professors that are in at universities that are like working within departments that you're interested in going to, they're there to answer your questions. If you're a potential student, like if you're looking to go to that school, they expect people to email them, to call them, to reach out to want to meet with them in the pandemic ever ends. Like, they're there to help you. And I feel like so many people I talk to are like, is that okay for me to reach out to them? And I'm like, absolutely. Their emails are listed on the website for a reason. Like you can find their emails, reach out to them. Most of them are willing to like sit down and talk with you or zoom with you or hop on a phone call. Um, All of us didn't get in the positions that we're in without help or advice from somebody. And so it would be silly to think that we wouldn't go back and do the same for other students that are interested in following in the same field. So my biggest piece of advice would be to uh, not just get advice from one person and uh, find a lots of op- different opinions because everyone's experience is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just really appreciate your whole uh, like m- idea of just giving back in a general sense. Um, like with knowledge, I think comes responsibility of like disseminating that knowledge and uh, yeah, that's that, that's what we hope to do with this, um, just in general. But yeah, uh, yeah, like you using your platforms on different levels is is really nice, and I know beneficial for a lot of people. Yeah, it's something. And from the getting kind of back to like where my whole issue started with like my interest in nutrition. One of the one of my downfalls was ho- was getting horrible nutrition advice from like magazines and stuff. I would my mom can tell you like I hoarded magazines and I read all the like bad diet information and it's really funny to think about like all of the diet information that I was getting from all the different sources, they would all tell you something different or something else to eliminate to the point in which you couldn't eat anything for if you wanted to be healthy. Um and that like I think it's because I fell down into like the pseudoscience and like fad diet rabbit hole. And that's what caused me so much harm and like turmoil. Like I want to be like a voice of reason and like maybe like one person sees it and like doesn't fall down the like pseudoscience rabbit hole because I posted something that debunked something they said, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And people it's like credentials don't mean everything, but people do put a lot of weight in credentials with their like trust of people. Like I know some, like there are doctors on social media that are, don't give good advice, especially when it comes to nutrition. Um, and there's, there's RDs that don't give good advice, but in general people, people value like those credentials and um, put a lot of faith behind them. And so I do feel like you have an obligation to um, speak up, especially um if you if you know that you're being scientific and evidence based and combating some of those that are not, yeah, yeah, so maybe that's what we'll call the green check mark, like evidence based. <laughs> yeah, it's the evidence that would be great. I'd love that. <laughs> I did want to sneak in one more question, really quick too. Um, I've been having this thought, and again, this is just me like doing my own thing over here, <laughs> but the idea of like trying to determine if. Do people do better digesting one thing at a time? Oh, yeah. Versus like, and this, I don't even know where this thought comes from. Like, I didn't read it anywhere. I'm just thinking like, but I don't know. So I'm asking. 
No, there's not evidence for that. And that's been like a like huge push in like the food combining is like a thing now. It's a trend Mm -hmm. um, where people think that they can only combine certain foods for like optimal digestion. Mm -hmm. And no, our we have different enzymes that get released for different macronutrients to break them down and they will get released in the proportion in which that they need to be to like metabolize and just because you break di- down those digesting one thing doesn't mean you doesn't can't, mean you can't or you have less energy to digest. Yeah. Okay, I mean, let's cool. not eat like a hundred, like a full pound of steak and like a pound of Brussels sprouts. Like at the same time, that's just not going to feel good. Yeah, but no. if you're just eating a balanced diet, it's like <laughs> your body is perfectly capable of digesting multiple things at one time. Cool. I feel right. targeted. I targeted <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Yeah, that that's something that came up. Brenda and I were like working out one time and we're like, man, is there something to this? And we didn't do the research at all, <laughs> but yeah. we didn't try it Zero out either. Research. Total <laughs> bro science hypothesis. Yeah, it was. So thank you for debunking <laughs> yeah. our yeah. silly idea. Yeah. <laughs> Saved me a lot of uh, stress of multiple weeks of just trying to eat one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. God, that's, that's horrible. If you had to like segment your meals and like, okay, I can only eat my carbs right now. Yeah. Okay. This hour I'm only eating steak and <laughs> yeah. next hour I can eat all my veggies. That's a lot of time eating. <laughs> yeah. It is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So much here. Um, thank you so much. We've really appreciated this. Uh, and we look forward to potentially having like another conversation in the future. Cause I, like we said, there's just so much packed into this uh, topic and um, just for people who are listening or watching um, Dr. Hoffman provides so much good information on our social media. Uh, we'll definitely link all that in the description um, and just check out all that information. Cause it is really insightful. And she's been on other podcasts. She shares a lot of other good information too. So make sure you check out anywhere she's uh, she's sharing her information. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been yeah, a very too. fun chat. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Brendan, what's hot? Definitely Armchair Scholars Podcast. Agreed. And what's not? Not listening to Armchair Scholars Podcast. Double agreed. What's really not hot is the million people who haven't yet found our podcast how should we turn up the heat and get a million people to our podcast nick everybody's got to tell everybody everybody tell everybody i mean i think that's good advice right how should everybody tell everybody smashing the like button clicking subscribe tweeting about us commenting on our insta posts liking us on facebook subscribing on youtube again sharing us on youtube emailing friends (laughs) Unsubscribe and then resubscribe just so you can really obliterate the like button. Calling your friends internationally. Flying on a plane to go meet your friend internationally to tell them face to face. We don't make merch, but you should make merch with our logo on it and wear it all the time. Yeah, you could probably put a decal on your car. That's armchair scholars. You could get a bunch of light bulbs and share them around. I would even go as far as to say that other people should tell their friends that they are the host of the Armchair Scholars podcast. Wow. Because they're not, but then they'll find us because they'll think their friends are the host. And if we want to really stretch internationally, if you can translate what we say into another language, we'd really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. We want that for free. Greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. It's an internship unpaid. And then subscribe again on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I I actually think people should make multiple emails just so they can subscribe multiple times. Yeah. And also, I don't know why people don't just like put our podcast, put our podcast on and then turn the volume down just to give us more views. Yeah, while you're sleeping, just have it be on repeat. 
Yeah. I think that'll that'll start to scratch the surface of what we that felt hot sizzling. <laughs> so I think um, if you can do all those things for us, we'd greatly appreciate it. And um, thanks. If you got this far into this discussion, God bless you because this is pretty dumb. <laughs> this was. <laughs>